0: This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Wealthbar. Wealthbar makes it ridiculously easy to access professionally managed investments and financial advice. Invest in a professionally managed portfolio in minutes. Sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com/Canadaland and get a $100 fee credit. Visit wealthbar.com/Canadaland
1: for more offer details. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes it easy to stay in the black without seeing red. It's genuinely easy to invoice, expense, and manage your books as a small business owner. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter O-P-P-O in the how did you hear about us?" section. That's freshbooks.com oppo for 50% off your first three months. From Canada land, this is oppo. I'm Sandy Garrosino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson, and I'm in Calgary. And Sandy, I'm really hoping that you are more hungover than I am tired. Otherwise, you are going (laughs) to eat me alive in this episode. On this week's show, we're talking about dismantled blockades and pipeline progress. Not like it's been a slow news week here. Yeah, and on top of that, we're going to be
0: talking about the Buffalo Declaration and what's going on in Alberta. I mean, you're right
1: there right now, so what are you seeing? Canada's breaking apart. And Tech (laughs) Resources has just withdrawn its application for a $20 billion oil sands mine in northern Alberta. So, Sandy...
0: Yeah, Jen, what do you think of where we are with what We'd actually recorded an entire episode last week which is now completely out of date. What what's your take now? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, for those who uh, don't understand how uh, podcasting deadlines work, uh, you and I were actually ahead of the ball for for the first time this week, and we were like, we had this, this episode completely down by Friday, and we were like, ahead of the curve, and then events, dear Watson, events overtook us. As we are recording here on Monday morning, it looks like the OPP is moving into blockades near the Mohawk Territory, close to Belleville, Ontario, and they are going to be removing the blockade, making a very dramatic turnabout from what we expected. Expected to happen last week when Justin Trudeau counseled for patience on all, mm-hmm. on this entire file. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandy, what's your take on what's going on so far?
0: Well, what appeared to be going on was that the federal government was meeting certain conditions set by the Wet'suwet'en people, uh, the office of the Witsoten representing the hereditary chiefs, they were withdrawing RCMP presence. There were talks going on. And I think there was an expectation by everyone that things were cooling off. And we were at least going to get to a bit of a standoff, but progress and that the Mohawk blockades and indigenous blockades would come down on the railroads. And that's where we stood on on Thursday, and then somehow everything fell apart.
1: So Sandy, I've got my theories here, but how do we go from a prime minister that gets up in a press conference on Monday counselling patients on this file? So finding a
0: solution will not be simple. It will take determination,
1: hard work, and cooperation. And by Friday, not four days later... We have him taking a straightforward line about how these blockades are unacceptable and people are going to be moving in and and being given a deadline or they're going to get arrested.
0: Canadians have been patient.
1: Our government
0: has been patient. But it has been two weeks and the barricades need to come down now.
1: How do we make that kind of a transition? over the course of like really four days. To
0: me, it's pretty obvious that what uh, happened was, just reading between the lines, was that there was a belief earlier that progress was going to be possible, that the relationships were there to make progress. I'm going to make the guess that there are influencers within uh, the community and within government that was keeping talks open and that progress was going to be made. But we are talking about critical federal infrastructure. There is pressure. And also, one of the things that happened was that uh, vigilantes started to move in in Alberta. And that, I think, introduced a new element of urgency, which is that there was now a public safety issue, an additional
1: public safety issue. Can I put forward my, my startlingly cynical theory? Because I don't actually think anything changed from Monday to Friday. I think the Wet'suwet and Hereditary leaders were pretty blunt about um, their demands and pretty straightforward about their inability or unwillingness to meet with Carolyn Bennett and the prime minister until those demands were met. I think literally nothing changed except for my suspicion is that the Liberals' internal polling came back and showed them that their position on this was catastrophically unpopular with the Canadian public. And I also suspect that in addition to the vigilantes that you pointed out, and yes, I think that that raised the stakes on on all of this pretty substantively. If you had, you know, groups of vigilantes coming in and taking down these blockades, that is the, that was the worst possible outcome and the most likely to lead to, to violence and danger. Um, but in addition to that, what I think happened was, you know, I don't know if you know my, my colleague Matt Gurney, who works for the Post, he actually did some some math on some of the logistics here. And basically, uh, a lot of Canada's very critical um, supplies of things like propane, food, and chlorine run on rail. And if those rail lines were closed down for more than about 14 days, what we start to get into is a bit of um, a cascading logistical failure. Dominoes falling. Yeah, dominoes start to fall apart. We don't need a
0: reporter working off a napkin to know that. You know, I, I think it's pure speculation to think that this was driven by polls, not to say that polls don't have a lot to do with this, but I think that any... Anybody with two brain cells to rub together could figure out that this was always going to be an option, but you want this to be your last resort. I think most governments, except for people like Aaron O'Toole and and people chafing for the for the Conservative Party leadership, who will want to make it seem like they would know exactly what to do and would move in right away with a a, um, a hardcore police response right away.
1: Canada must act against a small group intent on disrupting the economy and holding Canada back.
0: Most of the time in government, you want to keep this in reserve as your last option.
1: Of, of course, but at the same time, when you rule out the use of force right at the beginning, you completely diminish your, the federal government's leverage for negotiation. And that creates a situation in which the people you're trying to negotiate with don't have to meet your demands, don't have to engage in anything because they know that they have you by the Basically, by the balls, right at the front, and that's how we get they to a situation by where we the go balls, from, Jen. <laughs> Well, they have me by the balls. Oh, I don't I know about me. your balls, but <laughs> I self-identify as a as a as a heavily <laughs> balls woman. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the idea the idea that there was some kind of dramatic change over that 72 hours that justified this total turnabout, I think is insane.
0: I don't. I think that once vigilantes um, moved into attack, I think it became a more urgent public safety issue. And I think that they obviously gave, gave up on the idea that they were going to be able to negotiate. But I don't know why they thought they were going to be able to negotiate. Because of the one of the things that uh, is really crucial here in this analysis, there's a lot of commentary and chin-wagging that's been going on about the Wet'suwet'en land rights and title and uh, the Delgamuuk Supreme Court of Canada decision. I looked uh, at the injunction decision and I've looked at, at the conduct afterwards. One of the things that's really standing out here is that the hereditary chiefs are absolutely rejecting the legal framework of the Canadian justice system as it relates to this dispute. As the judge in the injunction application noted, they didn't contest the uh, granting of the licences, they didn't challenge, they didn't bring in a constitutional challenge to Coastal Gas Link. And I have not seen, I've looked, but I haven't seen an indication that, that they have appealed the ruling, the injunction. And, you know, in the absence of an appeal, all of this action, you know, in the normal way that these things are have been done in indigenous disputes with the federal or or provincial government is that indigenous nations uh appeal and they go through the legal channels and this has been an absolute rejection flat-out rejection and a seizure in a way of political power the courts have said you're entitled to consultation you're not entitled to consent, a.k.a. a veto. And although the Wet'suwet'en are moving from a purely political standpoint and they are rejecting the legal framework, Canada and the federal government can only respond from within the bounds of that framework. For instance, this is a provincial project. It falls squarely within the BC provincial government's jurisdiction. There are some federal aspects to this. But Justin Trudeau does not have a lot of the tools to do what the Wet'suwet'en are demanding. And I find it interesting how much they're trying to negotiate with Justin Trudeau as opposed to John Horgan, the Premier of B.C. And this makes me wonder if one of the rationales for the strategy of a railroad blockade, which is federal jurisdiction, is to necessarily draw the Prime Minister into what would otherwise be a provincial
1: dispute. That's a really astute point, and I want to touch on something else you just said that I think was really important, because it goes, I think, to the very heart of reconciliation. And I have my questions about what reconciliation is and what it's intended to accomplish and who it's intended to benefit. But if your your understanding of reconciliation was predicated on the idea that a Canadian court was going to rule against its own jurisdiction... (laughs) I think that you were always going to be set up for disillusionment. Like, I, I don't see a Canadian legal framework by which a, a Canadian judge is going to be like, yeah, you're right, uh, we just don't have jurisdiction over this territory. Outside of a context of a treaty or a statutory declaration or a court declaration, mm-hmm. I don't see how that was always ever going to be a realistic outcome. And in here. fact, that's what the Canadian
0: courts have said, even as they have expanded Indigenous rights and title dramatically from where they were back in the day when I was a wet behind the ears law student. They, I mean, this is just the expansion of indigenous title or recognition, shall we say, has been dramatic. But the courts have been absolutely clear that they expect to have sovereignty
1: over this issue. The Canadian courts are never going to rule. Hey, you're right. We are illegitimate. Well, they have.
0: They've done. They've gone pretty darn far. I mean, we had Beverly McLaughlin actually making the statement about genocide. And I think it's important to recognize that. And one of the things that always, always bothers me in this this dispute, and I think that Canadians generally always have trouble with it, is where did these resources come from in the first place? I mean, this is, in a way, this goes right to the heart of the original sin of Canada. If Americans talk about slavery being uh, America's original sin, which they conveniently ignore the seizure of, of American lands from indigenous uh, First Nations mm-hmm. who were there, this is and has to be Canada's. And this is our Achilles heel, is that we do not have the moral high ground here. Uh, or it's, or it's, it's certainly very questionable. And that is why you see Justin Trudeau struggling so much
1: with this. Well, ultimately, all sovereignty is predicated on the legitimate use of force, and that's what we're essentially seeing happen here in real time. Um, As I said, as we're taping this on Monday morning, we're seeing the OPP move in um, to sort of dismantle the blockade near the uh, Mohawk First Nation near Belleville, Ontario, and I'm not going to attempt to mispronounce the actual full name of the Mohawk Nation. It's tough to say where this is going to go. We aren't seeing an escalation into uh, extreme forms of violence. We're seeing kind of relatively minor fisticuffs followed by arrests, which is about what I expected. But you know what? I don't want to say anything or make any productions at this point because it's a pretty volatile situation and things could dramatically change by Tuesday.
0: It's difficult to comment. And we are not in Ontario. And this is one of the things that, that when, one of the things that is really striking, isn't that, is you know, here in British Columbia, we have a, a literacy, or at least certain some people do, a literacy and a conversance with the particulars of the Indigenous landscape here in British Columbia. But it varies dramatically, and the political um, landscape varies dramatically within the Indigenous communities. This is not a monolith. We don't know what to expect.
1: This episode of OPPO is brought to you in part by Bar. Wealth believes your investment experience shouldn't be determined by how much you actually have. So, whether you've got $1,000 or a $1,000,000, you get access to professionally managed investments and financial advice. Open a TFSA, RRSP, and more online in minutes. No paperwork, no hold music. Check in on your investments anytime from your computer on their easy-to-use mobile app. Start investing with as little as $1,000. Consolidate your investments into one easy-to-manage view and get the full picture of how your wealth is growing. The RRSP contribution deadline is March 2nd. That's the last day you can make a deposit into your RRSP to have it count against your 2019 tax year. Put your money in an RRSP. Do it. Floss your teeth. Wear sunscreen. Invest in RRSPs. (laughs) And start investing right away from the comfort of your PJs. Talk to your financial professional by chat, email, or phone, or book an appointment through the app. All at your convenience. Sign up in just a few minutes at wealthbar.com canadaland and get a $100 fee credit. Visit wealthbar.com canadaland for more offer details. This episode of Oppo
0: is brought to you by FreshBooks, the preposterously easy to use accounting software. You started a small business because you love what you do. So why don't you have time to actually do it? FreshBooks helps you focus on your craft by saving you time invoicing, expensing and tracking your work. It's so easy to use with built-in automation to ensure you spend as little time as possible invoicing, expensing, and tracking time. You can get back to what actually matters to you, growing a business. FreshBooks has plans designed for all types of small businesses. So whether you're a freelance photographer, carpenter, or a podcaster, choose a plan that's right for you. FreshBooks is a simple and intuitive tool for small business owners. But if you ever need a bit of help wrapping your head around something, they have an award-winning Toronto-based support team who are always happy to help. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section.
1: Yeah, so remember when we originally taped the show four days ago and we hadn't yet had an answer on the Tech Frontier Mine?
0: Yeah, yeah, and we were all expecting, well, I didn't know what to expect, but I didn't expect this. It's
1: coming sometime in the next week. Well, events, events again have dropped themselves on us and we have news Uh, This morning, that tech has withdrawn its application for the mine, preventing, or or, sorry, sparing uh, Justin Trudeau from making a very, very difficult decision about whether or not to approve that mine in the midst of the Wet'suwet'en crisis. Mm -hmm. So this was a $20 billion project uh, that was going to add about 7,000 jobs in northern Alberta. The odds of this project actually being built despite the regulatory approval or disapproval was always pretty minor. Tech was pretty open about what it needed for this mine to be profitable. It needed something like $75 a barrel oil. It needed more investors and it needed more pipeline capacity. The $75 barrel oil was was pretty crucial. And of course, we are nowhere near that. We're closer to 50. We're
0: around 50 and and rapidly dropping. Oil prices are off 20% since the beginning of the year and 5% today in the uh, crisis uh, brought on by the China paralysis.
1: But let's also be be clear here that nobody builds uh, oil sands projects based on the spot price of the day. Oil sands projects are 30, 40, 50 year timeline projects. You're building a project um, based on what you think oil is going to be on average over the span of decades, right? Which is why, for example, many of the oil sands haven't shut down, even though the price of oil is not what it was five, six years ago.
0: It's cheaper to continue to operate as a loss than to shut down
1: altogether yeah correct once once you have the investments in, once you have the thing you're you're basically stuck in yeah. it you're you're dealing with sunk costs, so even if you take it at a loss for a couple of years, even up to a decade, you' got to think about the profitability of that mine over a fifty year yeah. time frame. but that being said, I do think that it's safe to say that at this point the tech mine was a deeply symbolic project, even if there was a kind of understanding that it was very unlikely to move forward. That's probably why it was
0: even going forward as much as it was, don't you think
1: um. No, there was a, a chance that this was going to be a profitable project in the long run. Like, don't get me wrong, like, the, the oil sands haven't shut down, no, right? But I mean, it's, people are still pulling money out of there. It, it, extraordinary capital investment has not been. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. You would need the extraordinary capital investment. So even if it, the odds of this are not going forward, mm-hmm. there was a reason why this is a big deal in Alberta today. And that was because, like any other economic prognosticator, the oil and gas sector relies on sort of, bellwethers to get a sense of you know which way uh, uh, an industry is going. And I think that they had put an enormous amount of symbolic weight in the tech frontier approval process. The sense in Alberta, I think, is that if tech couldn't get approved, nothing is ever going to get approved again. And it's time to pack it in because the party's over. And that is why I think this um, decision to pull out is going to be very, very bad for Alberta, because I think that it is going to fundamentally shake the oil and gas sector's confidence in this province. Do you
0: not think that this is, in a way, the day of reckoning that Alberta has avoided and avoided and avoided long after the writing was on the wall? I mean, this is the really tragic thing of what's been going on in in the oil sands and in Calgary generally, is the oil prices that we're seeing and the failure of those prices to be economically sustainable for the oil sands is... The thought when this crisis first hit in 2014, 2015, was that this was cyclical. And then we started to see the um, uh, shale oil revolution come out of the United States, where the United States became not only independent, but is now a net exporter of oil. And structurally, the oil industry supply line and economics have fundamentally changed. And those are a disaster for the oil sands.
1: Yes and no. The broader global oil prices are well beyond Alberta's control. There's no dispute on this point. And like the economics of the industry being fundamentally changed, and, and yes, that's correct. And the fact that Alberta was going to be damaged by that shift, yes, that's mm-hmm. correct. Where this is not quite right is the idea that the oil sands are not profitable at $50 in a barrel. My very basic understanding is that the oil sands can be profitable at anything above $30 a barrel.
0: And that will increase as there are technological advances. Yeah. Correct.
1: Yes. And there are technological advances that not only increase the efficiency of the oil sands, but also um, diminish the environmental impact yes. of the oil sands. And as more investment was going into the oil sands, a lot more investment was going into things like carbon capture. And so when you pull out that investment, now the incentive to make... Improvements to the actual greenhouse gas emissions side of this ledger have also just dried up and disappeared. There is no incentive to do that anymore. If this is the max, this is the max. Secondly, I mean, The bitumen that comes out of Alberta is a low-grade crude that can only be processed in certain refineries, and there is no question that the lack of pipeline capacity is a huge hindrance to not only Alberta producing more oil, what it actually is is a hindrance um, to the capacity for Alberta to get fair market value for the oil it already produces and will continue to produce.
0: And that's really the fundamental argument for TMX, I think, from Correct. the federal government's yeah. point of view. is TMX,
1: that this- TMX is not about increasing the footprint or the size of the oil sands. Predominantly, TMX is about making sure that Alberta doesn't get screwed on the barrels of oil that it is already but producing, that's, which is what's and that's happening why, right
0: now. But that's one of the reasons that made tech such a political hot potato for yes. Justin Trudeau was that the Tech Frontier Mine Project was not only a, a big capital expenditure, a new vote of confidence in the oil sands, but it also was a market expansion of oil sands output. And I think that is the where the rubber would hit the road for a lot of Canadians that were willing to support TMX in order for Alberta to get those, uh, the international prices, to get higher prices for existing output. But I think a lot of Canadians have a big problem with the unchecked uh, expansion of oil sands production.
1: So I think that's exactly correct. And I think that that's why tech was such a difficult political, co- yes. political question. And I think that tech absolutely did Trudeau a favor by just withdrawing the application, as I said, particularly in the midst of the Wet'suwet'en protests, he did them a huge favor. And I would also point out that one thing that I think tech really made a point of highlighting in its letter explaining its decision to withdraw was the the country's sort of lack of consensus around climate change issues. And Tech's support of carbon pricing. That's exactly. And that was a very clear and direct point at Jason Kenney and Jason Kenney's bellicosity around uh, climate change policies and their decision to dismantle the Notley government's sort of climate change um, uh, program. So like I, another I, I, win for I the war it has room. to be said another win for the war room. I have to be honest with you you know, I think that Trudeau owns some of this. I think that global realities own some of this. And I also think Kenny owns some of this decision to withdraw. You know, if Kenny had taken a much more progressive and forward looking approach on on carbon pricing and on climate change and been able to show to some of these international investors that Alberta is this you know, progressive forward-looking province that is taking action on climate change in a really excellent and substantive and, and, and forward-thinking way, we would be in a much better situation today than we actually are. I, I think that there has been just an absolute strategic failure by the Alberta government under Jason Kenney on this particular the, the dec- file, and I think that it's worth pointing the out. The
0: declaration of war on the climate movement, which is a global movement, dumb, and dumb, which Canadians dumb. generally outside Alberta are absolutely lockstep in favor of making progress on this was just a terrible strategically idiotic
1: yeah. it's just strategically idiotic but let me let me g- like break this down for you and just give you a sense in real terms what this is going to mean for Alberta because you know my mom worked in oil and gas for a number of years and she's potentially looking at uh, buying a condo closer to her grandkids here in Calgary and let me tell you she's been she was here last week looking at condos and could not find a condo that wasn't being listed for you know, between fifty and seventy thousand dollars less than what it had been bought for, not two or three years ago. Yeah. So, like in real terms, this isn't just a question about you know fat plutocrats and the oil sands not making their their quarterly returns. I mean, I can tell you stories about major oil and gas companies in downtown Calgary that are essentially packing and, it out. And and this is the oxygen the
0: oxygen just leaving the room on this is just it's it's. Tragic for a city and a province
1: that has really built so much on this. And let me explain, try and explain a little bit just how how dramatic this is going to be, because my mom was talking to someone who works for an oil and gas company on real estate, because of course, a lot of these oil and gas companies have real estate specialists to help people relocate, et cetera, et cetera. And this person said, wait until they see whether or not the tech frontier mine Mm -hmm. application goes through or not, because of that tech mine application doesn't get approved by the Trudeau government, you're going to see real estate prices in Calgary drop th- even more than how mm-hmm. they already have. You're going to see them drop through the freaking floor because the absolute investor confidence is just going to get sucked out of the room. And that is what we are going to see happen in the next couple of months in Alberta. And it is going to be ugly. And
0: once again, just to kind of wrap up this subject, I still come back to Jason Kenney and his failure to really seize this moment and to to act in a way that would bring confidence to Albertans, everything has been placed on these projects, these oil and gas projects. Where is the provincial government strategy to diversify the economy, to to attract
1: technology,
0: to attract? What about you know s- solar and wind
1: oh, and Oh man, renewable- that's, that's a that's a yeah. that's an episode in and of itself. The Alberta government has been trying to diversify the economy since the 70s. That is a an episode in and of itself. And if we want to devote an episode to it, I would highly <laughs> welcome it. But let's bring like Andrew Leach on because government attempts to diversify the economy have been an overwhelming failure over 50 years of attempts. Yep. Kenny owns a lot of this failure, but it's a really complicated issue. And like, I know I've heard people be like, hey, we'll just spend some federal money and, you know, hire some all those oil and gas workers back to clean up mm. the abandoned mine. We're talking about a $100 billion industry that hi- that uh, hires like 150,000 people in this province at its nadir. Well, the day like, of reckoning you're not, has government, arrived, the government, sadly. The, the federal government can't come in and just fix it with more money. It isn't going to be that simple and it isn't going to be that great. And let me tell you, if this industry collapses as dramatically as it potentially could, you're going to feel it across the country. It's not just going to be uh, cana-
0: I think Canadians understand that. Well, they're about to understand
1: it a hell of a lot more, let me tell you
0: we have a serious and enduring problem that is doomed to repeat itself. And that is not fair, it's not fair. And I would not be doing my job on behalf of the
1: people in my riding if I didn't seek to push the envelope and start a conversation on these issues because they deserve it. So today, I I joined other Alberta MPs in issuing the Buffalo Declaration and I encourage you to read it at buffalodeclaration.ca. Have you heard about this Buffalo Declaration, Sandy? Well, I've heard
0: about it. I know that you're going to tell me all about it.
1: Okay, so I've been kind of waiting for this for a while because as it came out last Thursday, um, several Alberta MPs, notably Arnold Viersen, Blake Richards, Glenn Motts, and Michelle Rempel-Garner, put their names behind something called the Buffalo Declaration. This is a rather extensive sort of political manifesto that I think attempts to articulate the long-standing beef that Alberta and probably to a lesser extent Saskatchewan has had with Ottawa, you know, really going back to the founding of the province in 1905. Uh, I'll read you a little brief note from it. Quote, Alberta is not and has never been an equal participant in Confederation. Alberta is a culturally distinct region, but this has not been recognized. Alberta is physically and structurally isolated from economic and political power structures, and Eastern Canada functionally treats Alberta as a colony rather than as an equal partner. Now, Sandy, I think you and I are going to have slightly different perspectives in this because, of course, I'm in Alberta and I'm seeing and feeling the Alberta vibe. And you are not in Alberta. You're in British Columbia. What do you think outsiders are going to hear when they see this declaration?
0: Well, I grew up in Alberta, so there's nothing about this declaration that comes as a surprise because I think I was... Uh... I listened to exactly this kind of rhetoric in 1975 and mm-hmm. and before, and of course this is the Reform Party. This is you know the Western Canadian Alliance. We've always heard this because I think that there's a Alberta does have a markedly different ethos. Uh, it does have a markedly different approach to things, but. It's one region, you know, there's Alberta has a population of what about four million yeah. people. You know, that's what does Greater Toronto. We encounter this all the time. And I think that what we're seeing is that Alberta has a very distinctive view on the world, and the majority of Canadians probably have a have a different view. And so Alberta wants to have more influence. And we keep coming back to the to this equalization formula, which curiously, was brought in by the Harper government um, yes, by a, by an Alberta-based Prime Minister. So if you ever want to have the ability to have influence,
1: get your but that I think is the heart of the problem. I think that the argument that the Buffalo Declaration is making is that even if we get a Westerner in the Prime Minister' seat, even if we have like a western focused conservative party or a unified conservative party, ultimately, any political calculus is going to shift toward the interests of central canada by virtue of its its populace by virtue of its of its democratic weight so to speak so alberta can't actually be heard or get anything done within the system as it is and now, neither
0: I, can bc and neither can atlantic canada you know this agrees, is yeah.
1: welcome to confederation and what are your options you pose very brilliantly the question that the uh, Buffalo Declaration, uh, I think, would pose and, and seek to answer. So, I mean, there's a couple things that I would note more broadly about this declaration and the timing of it. Obviously, the fact that this is coming out in the midst of the conservative leadership race is not a coincidence. Mm. What I think is interesting about this is that, you know, as someone who's been following Wexit for a couple of months now, Wexit was a pretty fringe movement run by pretty fringe people. And you saw a real reluctance by mainstream politicians to put their names publicly on anything that looked successionist. And so I was like, look, until you start to see mainstream politicians start to advocate for more of a successionist light or version version of Wexit, this really isn't going to go anywhere. But this could be one of those inflection points. You know, uh, Michelle Garner is a mainstream politician. You're starting to see people like Brian Jean come out with these kind of like, Look, we'll work within Confederation, but if that doesn't work, dot dot dot. Then um, and what? Then, yeah, what? Exactly, so really, then, then what? I want to
0: go. I want to go. Then what?
1: There's another point I need to make here before we go to the then what here, because I think that there's some broader sort of context that I need to explain here. So, like, look, you're starting to see mainstream politicians put their names to some more agitation here, and I think that that is kind of a sign that something is afoot. What I think is actually afoot here is that you have. I don't know. I almost half read this as a lot of Alberta MPs giving up on the the Conservative Party and Mm. the potentially the beginning of a Western bloc movement, a a recreation of the Reform Party with the understanding that this is not a party that thinks it can win power, but Alberta may have a stronger voice in Parliament if a Conservative Party needs to appeal to a Western bloc party in order to form a majority government. That you may have more leverage in that scenario.
0: Can I point out that the National Post puts Alberta Alberta interests Jason Kenney and Alberta concerns the oil and gas industry on the front page week after week, day after day, we get it all the time. I don't think in the Canadian newspaper world that there is a province that has more representation per capita in this country than Alberta. Certainly B.C. doesn't.
1: What do you mean by representation here? By journalistic representation?
0: No, I mean, look at the headlines. Jason Kenney, Jason Kenney, Jason Kenney. War room, we're
1: declaring war. As someone who worked as the Alberta correspondent for the National Post, you ain't wrong. There was a a very clear and explicit understanding that Alberta was one of the key uh, focal points of the post's coverage that it absolutely was. It was an Ontario and Alberta paper almost to that extent.
0: And that drove national coverage. That drove, and that drove coverage. national coverage. It, tell, it it drove Canadian media overall.
1: That said it was still only me, man. It was just me
0: in the wilderness for a long time in the National Post. But I'm talking about like <laughs> looking at the headlines. Look just look at it. You know what I think is going well, I'm disagreeing think, with you. I I think you're quite correct. To a certain extent What's going on here is Alberta is traumatized that the Conservatives didn't win the federal election. If the Conservatives had won the federal election, there would be no issue. And there this is largely... So I'm going to ask you this, Jen, what's the real game here? Because like you say, this is happening within the context of the leadership race in which the two front runners, the major front runner, Peter McKay, who seems to have his shoelaces tied together, and Aaron O'Toole, is um, are, they're from Ontario. Is that what's really going on here?
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's a three-part game here, okay? The first part is to make Alberta a central element of the conservative leadership race, and that to some extent, a hope that the leaders are going to sort of kiss Alberta's ring a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the second gameplay here is that if that doesn't work, I think that there's a risk of a, of a Western party, a Western bloc, mm-hmm. um, sort of use this uh, declaration as a backbone form. I mean, there's something very interesting about this declaration is that it, it reads- and, and I'm just going to
0: leap in. Jean Chrétien rode that division between the conservatives and the Western conservatives to a decade of power.
1: Yes, he did. Um, And I think there's also something very interesting about this declaration that's been pointed out to me is that it almost reads like it's being written for Eastern Canada. It doesn't read like it's being written for Alberta. So that is interesting to me. And then I think the third most long shot option is that, you know, if after 10 years, Alberta can't get, you know, another conservative party in power in Ottawa, You know, then you're going to start to see some of these politicians more openly shift toward um, succession and separation or something like that. But at this point, I think that this sort of declaration is a purely political document, and I think it's a power play.
0: Okay. And I just want to finish up by pointing out I'm from the West of the West. (laughs) And here in British Columbia, like the whole Wexit thing is a total non-starter. And what's fascinating is to watch the Albertans clamoring away about how they're being ignored. And maybe they're going to just separate in which case, they're ignoring that there's another province, that they're just going to ride roughshod over BC interests and, and well, get Quebec that. was
1: Quebec was perfectly willing to ride roughshod over the Atlantic interests, too. And what happened
0: to Quebec? Where is it today? It is in Confederation, isn't it? I mean, none of these things.
1: Actual- you might argue that separation's done uh, Quebec a world of bloody good in Confederation. But um, I agree with you. No, I mean, the Wexiteers have a sort of a cockamamie scheme that they think that if they separate that it's going to force BC to come along and form this kind of Western block. Uh, yeah, between, well, and I, I just think that that is that's fantasy land.
0: Dreaming in Technicolor, by the way, we've got the largest ports on the West Coast of North America. So good luck with the Wexit plan, guys. But <laughs> I mean, all of this is we'll see where all of this goes. I Whenever the Conservative Party has crumbled, uh, they've lost power. Their only hope is to, and Ken Bosinkool was saying this the other day, their only hope is actually to expand their base. And to a certain extent, the power of the party has, was focused in Alberta with Stephen Harper, with Jason Kenney, with those key cabinet portfolios, and they've lost that power. And don't you think that there's a lot of this that is just kind of trauma of lost power?
1: Well, I mean, yes, of course. And what's interesting about all this as well is that um, you're quite right that if the conservatives had been in power, there wouldn't be a Western separatist movement sort of emerging right now. Of course, there wouldn't be. But that's exactly the point. If the, if the big conservative tent was only ever held together by the pursuit, the successful pursuit of power, and the conservatives have no effective shot at holding power now, then what's holding the big tent together, right? That's the risk of a, of a Western bloc party reemerging. So that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks, hopefully before the food supplies and the propane tanks run out.
0: (laughs) Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find
1: us on Twitter at OppoCast. This episode was produced by David Crosby, our managing editor is Kevin Sexton and the theme music by Nathan Burley. Did you see the thing about how uh, Paw Patrol's uh, uh, making kids capitalist or something? And I'm just like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, I like that my kid is, is uh, learning about, you know, imperialism and capitalism through the, the machinations of Thomas the Tank Engine. I insist that he, he watches the classic episodes for exactly this reason. Learn to be useful, child. Learn to be useful.